Hi friends, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And the project is to work through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. You're very welcome, and if you're here for the first time today, then why not consider making the decision to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily life and click on the subscribe button. This resource is always free and that way you'll not miss another single episode and you'll be able to join us on this journey together through the whole Bible over what we believe will be about another uh, seven years or so. If you're here for the very first time, then uh, I'll tell you some ways at the end in which you can access some more free teaching resources and ways in which you can connect not only to my teaching but the community. But with that said, let's drop back in and pick up where we left off last time. Have you ever heard the expression, the honeymoon is over? Well, I think that saying could be applied to the ministry of Jesus at this point in Matthew's Gospel narrative. When Jesus first appeared, it almost like he was received with great enthusiasm wherever he went. He spoke and taught marvellous things and he did miraculous works and the people received him gladly. But there comes a point in his ministry when all that changes and the beginning of that change is going to appear very soon. Opposition is seen to arise pretty quickly and firstly among the religious leaders of the day, but from that point forward it spreads to the ordinary people. What I want us to do today is look at one of the first times that's mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew this uh, specific opposition appears. I want to look at the fact that we've come to a point in the ministry of Christ when the honeymoon really does appear to be over. But I also think that buried within this passage are some profound spiritual truths if we can understand what the perspective is that brings about this change of mind. So we're going to drop into Matthew chapter 11 and we're going to pick up where we left off discussing the ministry of Christ. So I'm going to read for you first Matthew 11 verses 16 to 19 where Jesus says this, To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man comes eating and drinking, and they say he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. So Jesus here is really expressing how, I suppose, saddened he is by the sheer twistedness of human nature. To him it seems people are just like children playing in the village square. One group has come and said to others, come on, let's play, let's play something that's great fun. And the other group says, well, no, we don't feel like playing something happy today. Then the first group says, okay, let's play at something sad, let's play a role-play game about war or something like that. And others say, no, we don't want to do that either. The expression used to describe this sort of behaviour in my day, when I grew up in Ireland, was something called being contrary. In other words, whatever was suggested, they did not want to do. And no matter what is suggested, there are people who still find fault in it. And what we've seen, of course, here, and what Jesus is referring to, is the fact that, first of all, John the Baptist came, and he was the one who'd been living in the desert and fasting and rejecting food 
and eating very limited controlled diet. And he was actually someone who isolated himself from society and from people. And they said to him, oh, this man is mad. He's cut himself off from human society and all the human pleasures and joys of life. And they rejected him for that. And then Jesus comes and he mixes with all sorts of people and he shares in their sorrows and their joys and he accompanies them at the great times of life and they accuse him of being a party goer and someone who makes friends with outsiders and not a decent person. So they call John's decision to separate madness and that they call Jesus' decision to be sociable and have deep communications with everyone, they say that that demonstrates a lack of morals. So basically, whatever they were presented with, they found a way of criticising it either way. The plain truth of the fact is that people often don't want to listen to the truth. They often will just find an easy excuse for not listening. So what that tells me, and what I've seen in my life, is people are more often than not, not consistent in their criticisms. They will criticise us, and they criticise Jesus here, and they'll criticise even institutions, politics. They criticise them from both sides, and even from opposite sides of the argument. And at the end of the day, if people are determined not to respond to a message, they will remain stubbornly unresponsive, no matter how logical, or how passionate, or whatever the invitation made to them is. And Jesus says this and comes and points out that this is like children in the playground who are refusing to play no matter what the game is. Then comes his final phrase in this short couple of verses of scripture where Jesus says wisdom is shown to be right by her deeds. In other words, the ultimate verdict of truth or not lies not with these twisted perverse critics, but with the events themselves that are witnessed. The Jews of their day may have criticised John for his deciding to live in lonely isolation, but John, of course, appeared and moved men and women's hearts towards God. Something that had not been done for centuries. For 400 years there had been a gap since a prophet had been in Israel, and they criticised him when he appeared. And then they also managed to criticise Jesus for mixing too much with the ordinary people in life. But what he came offering, having John introduced his arrival, was that he was giving opportunities to people to find a new life, a new goodness, and a new power of God to live as they ought. In other words, a whole new way of accessing God. What that tells me today, friends, is that we too need to be very wary of this because we too might be prone to judge people. Sometimes we judge people, sometimes we judge other believers, other churches. And what this passage tells me is we should not be like these children in the marketplace. We should actually always try and be in a position to welcome people of God and the message they bring, to see how we can bring the various and disparate peoples of God together, even if that means sometimes their methods are not the methods or the style of presentation that suits us. Let's continue with the text and we'll pick up in Matthew 11, picking up at verse 20, where it says this. Then Jesus began to denounce the times in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Shazaran! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you have been performed in Tyre of Sodom, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. 
But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sardon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Let me remind you that when the Gospel writer John came to the end of his Gospel, he wrote a sentence in which he indicated how impossible it was to ever write a complete account of the life of Jesus. And he says that there are many other things which Jesus did, and were every one of them to be written, he says, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that it was written. That's John 21:25, And this passage in Matthew is proof, in a sense, of that saying also. Chorazin was probably a town about an hour's journey north of Capernaum, and Bethsaida was a fishing village on the west bank of the Jordan, just as the river entered the northern end of the lake. Clearly the most amazing things had happened in these times, but yet we need to notice that we have no actual account of them within the Gospel of accounts. There's no record of these works and what Jesus did and the wonders he performed in those places, and yet they are said here to be among his greatest. And a passage like this shows us, backs up really what John said in his Gospel about it, shows us that the Gospels are only a thin selection of the miraculous works of Jesus. And the things that we do not know about and have no record of, in fact, outnumber the things that we do. Now, we need to be careful to catch the nuance in what Jesus is saying here. The Revised Standard Version renders it, Woe to you, Chesaron, and woe to you, Bethsaida. So the Greek word for woe, which is translated in various different ways in our modern translation, has a sense and expression of sorrowful pity. Yes, it has a sense of anger in it, but also a real sadness at the events that has occurred. So this is the voice of someone who is angry, but the anger is being expressed because his emotion, if you like, has been uh, touched. It's not the sound of someone who is blazingly angry because he's been insulted. It has, the, if you like, the accent of sadness and sorrow about it. So in other words, Jesus' anger always arises out of what he sees as not welling up out of frustration against sin. It's not from a sense of outraged pride, but it's actually that anger and sadness that some have described as that of a broken heart. Now, no one knows exactly what the sin of these two towns were. But in pairing them alongside Sodom and Gomorrah, we can tell it must have been very serious. And again, we see Tyre and Sidon are also denounced for their wickedness. And illustrations of those wicked events are found in Isaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. But the very fact that these other towns are paired alongside Sodom and Gomorrah in this description means, in a sense, that they must have been similar in terms of the depth of their depravity. And we know, actually, that Sodom and Gomorrah have kind of now today represented by word for iniquity and sin. But what Bible experts have put together is that the sins of these cities have been the sins of people who forgot privileges of what they knew or what God had already revealed to them. So theirs was, in a sense, a sin of indifference. So some suggest that what it means is these cities did not openly attack Jesus Christ. They're not ones that drove him from the gates. They're not ones who at this stage would seek to crucify him. They simply disregarded him. 
And neglect can kill the messenger just as much as persecution. A writer can write a great book, but if no one reviews it, praises it or otherwise, it may disappear without trace. Sometimes true faith does not necessarily burn to death, if you like. It freezes to death. It's not always brought down by the most head-on attack. Sometimes it's slowly siphoned and suffocated till the life goes out of it. And what that tells me, that one sin, a very dangerous sin, one that often is not even thought about, is the sin of simply doing nothing. There are, of course, the very obvious actions of sins and of deeds, but there is also a sin of inaction being referenced here, an absence of doing something. Your defence can never be, but I never did anything. That defence, in fact, can sometimes stand as your condemnation. Sometimes, the saying is said, sometimes it only takes good people to do nothing for evil to increase. Okay, let's drop back into the text and pick up what it says in verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven, because you have hidden these things from the wise and revealed them to these little children. Yes, Father, for this is what was pleased for you to do. All things have been committed to you by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one who knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chose to reveal himself. So here Jesus is speaking out of experience. He's speaking about these religious leaders and the wise men, and how they rejected him at that time. The people accepted him, but the intellectuals did not accept him. They had no use for him. The people humbly welcomed, but the religious leaders plotted against him. Now, we need to understand that Jesus here is not criticising intellectual power. He's condemning intellectual pride. Now, we have to understand that the Jewish leaders of the day, they knew and recognised from the scriptures the danger of intellectual pride. The Old Testament repeatedly recognised how often simple people could be nearer to God than the, than the apparently wisest and most powerful of men. I suppose this passage, in a way, is really, by acknowledging this truth, is making one of the greatest claims that uh, Jesus has ever made, and a claim which is the very centre of the Christian faith, being that it is he alone that reveals God to men. If you want to see what God is like, if you want to see the mind of God, the heart of God, the nature of God, if you want to see God, you need to look at him. The attitude of people is always to look at me, but it is the Christian conviction that it is in Christ alone that we can see what God is like. And it is also the Christian conviction that Jesus can give us that knowledge to anyone who is humble enough and truthful enough to receive it. In other words, anyone who is able to cease looking within their own intellectual resources and instead make the decision to look out and seek out God and his wisdom outside of themselves. Let me just close off this chapter and read the last two verses for you, where it says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my oak upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus here is speaking to any man or woman who is sincerely, humbly, desperately trying to find God and trying to live in a godly way. Whilst at the same time warning that living such a life 
and striving in such a way can lead some to feel weariness and despair. But he says, yet in living this life, if that's your experience, come unto me all who are exhausted. His invitation is to anyone who is striving and is searching for the truth. So he's saying, come to me if you're weighed down by any of the burdens of life. You see, it's important to understand, particularly for the Jews at that time, and the way in which the religion was being interpreted by the scribes and the Pharisees, that the faith and path of God was a thing of burdens, something that was hard to bear. And what he's saying here is, well, in a sense that's true, but there's a solution, lay them upon my shoulders. You see, for the Jewish people of that time, the religion had become a set of endless rules. People lived their lives lost, if you like, in a forest of regulations where every action of life was dictated. And Jesus said simply, no, you don't need to do that. You simply have to listen to my voice, have the humility to hear what I'm saying. And Jesus here invites everyone, by nature he invites us today, to pick up his yoke, to take his yoke upon our shoulders. The Jews used this term yoke all the time. They talked about the yoke of submission. They spoke about the yoke of the law, the yoke of the commandments, the yoke of the kingdom and the yoke of God. But it may very well be that Jesus here is taking those words and using it as, as an invitation on something that you can pick up and share with him. He's saying, pick up that yoke, for my yoke is easy. And the word used for easy actually means well-fitting. Carrying his yoke makes it suitable for the purposes of life. There are even some legends and some teachers who suggest that one of the main job of carpenters at that time would have been to make yokes. So Jesus is saying here, if you pick up his yoke to deal with the burdens of life, it will fit well. In other words, the life that he will give you by accepting him and his teaching will make the task of living the life we live easier, better, more fit for purpose. Now that's not meaning that the burden of life is easy to carry, but when it's laid upon us in love and then carried in love, it can approach things in love and light, can make the heaviest of burdens in life easier to carry. When we remember the love of God, when we know that our burden is simply to love God and respond to him in Christ and thereby love other men and women, then the burden becomes, becomes something that is light and easier to carry. Okay, let me just summarise this passage and what I think the big point we shouldn't miss here is really about. What Jesus is saying in this passage, I think, and the transformation, revolutionary perspective that he's presenting to us is the difference between approaching God with pride or humility. Now Jesus, as I said before, is not condemning intellectual power. He's condemning intellectual pride. He's not condemning intellectual ability. He's condemning the attitude that some people have because of their intellectual ability. So that Jesus is saying in this passage is simply this, and it's an amazing profound truth, because he's saying God does not reveal his truths to the pride. Now I began in the introduction to this section today by saying the honeymoon is over, and that's what's going on in this passage. It's talking about the fact that that honeymoon period, if you like, for Jesus is over, and now he's going to begin to address the fact of why people reject him, and why people decide to reject him. 
One commentator said that we can draw a thick line in the sand here between the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of verse 12, wherein lies a great divide, out of which flows down two opposite streams of thought, almost feeding two different oceans of thinking, if you like. We are beginning to come face to face with a new aspect of the work of Christ. The Lord Jesus henceforth, from this point forward, will be presented as a different man in his actions and in his speech. Up to now, he's kind of fitted that pattern of being meek and lowly and teaching about love. But from this point forward, he's going to exhibit the other side. We're going to see an aspect of his character, his strength, his wrath against sin. His wrath against the pride of sin is going to be revealed henceforth in no uncertain ways. So I just want to point out that as we've gone through this Gospel of Matthew and we reach the end of chapter 11, we're arriving at a point of departure. Up to this point, we've seen Jesus be well received and steadily a sort of growth of popularity. But now all of a sudden, we're going to see in effect the opposite of of that. In short, as I said, the honeymoon period is over. But because of that, some fascinating things are about to be revealed and are about to happen as a result of that. But in approaching this turning and rejection, which was incubated amongst the the religious leadership and is now spilling out into the general population, it's important to understand that underpinning that rejection is the fact that it is God himself who hides the truth from people. Now that's an amazing thing to say, isn't it? And some of you might struggle to hear that, but let me explain. What I'm saying is that God hides the truth. The passage itself says that in P in English. It's telling us that God himself hides some of his truths from some people and it is from the arrogant and the prideful that he hides that truth. God will always reveal his spiritual truth to people who are humble. God will always give grace to the humble and he will resist the proud, it says elsewhere in scripture. I think anybody Any of us who come to the scripture and say, you know, I want to learn something from this. I want to learn something that has stood the test of time for thousands of years. Who would have thought that words on a page would outlast buildings, would outlast monuments, would outlast statues? But here we have the words of Jesus himself transcribed into a book that we call the New Testament. And providing we approach that, I believe, with a teachable spirit, then he will reveal the truths within it by grace and truth. Those who come to the Bible with a teachable spirit will get taught by the Spirit of God. That's what he's saying here. And those who think they know everything or approach the Bible and want to intellectually argue about it or argue with the text, they will just walk away blind and as ignorant as when they arrived. So if I have anything to say to you today about this passage, if there's anything I want you to take home from it, it's that when you open this book and when we open this book together on our journey together in the Bible Project, that you make sure that you come and approach it with an open mind and a teachable spirit. Because then, just then, God might reveal something to you.
Okay, friends, there we go. That's it for today. I hope you found that helpful. Please stick around and have a click around and look at some of the links where you can access things like the Facebook community, the permanent archive organized into playlists on the YouTube channel, and also some other courses like a preaching course and things like that, more structured discipleship courses that I also make freely available to my patrons on Patreon and also uh, even on my uh, personal LinkedIn page sometime. Now, if you're not getting active links appearing where you get your podcasts currently from, then just go through to the actual podcast host website, which is thebibleproject.buzzsprout.com, and you'll find all the links and even a transcript of everything I've said today available in that place. But with that all said, that's it for today. Thank you again for joining me. Thank you for being part of this amazing community of people around the world who've decided to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of their daily lives. And I do hope you'll join with me back here again tomorrow on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.